Amen. You can grab your seat. And as you are grabbing your seat, let me encourage you to also grab your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. We've provided Bibles to you for your use uh, in front of you there. And I'd encourage you to follow along and, and, and read the words and study the words with me so you, you know that I'm not making this stuff up, that it actually is there and, and written there. Um, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1, we'll read through verse 5. When I was younger, um, there was a stretch of time when I would regularly watch the reruns of the old 1960s uh, Batman television show. Um, You guys know the one I'm talking about, right? With Adam West, real cheesy, real campy. Um, When he punched somebody, the big pow came up on the screen. Um, This show had a consistent pattern of uh, every episode where it would always end with Batman and Robin in some sort of threatening situation where the outlook um, looked gloomy. And then there was a voiceover that would always come on, on and ask a bunch of questions to stir up the emotions of the viewer, right? Can Batman and Robin avert disaster? Can Batman possibly escape? Is this the end of the dynamic duo? Answers tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat channel. And it would always end on a cliffhanger, so you had to tune into the next episode to resolve the gloomy conflict at hand, and they'd always get out of it somehow. You watch those episodes and you say, this can't be the end. There's got to be more to the story. And if someone were to pick up the book of Isaiah and read through chapter 8, and stop there like we did last week, you would find yourselves in a very similar situation. Uh, We left off last week in the text. It was quite a depressing note. If you want the historical background behind it, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon. They they connect. They're actually meant to be read together as this week. Um, We won't go into the history behind the passage this week as much. Um, But what we do need to remember and know is that as the credits rolled, On our time last week, it appeared that there was no hope for the people of Jerusalem and that there was no hope for people living in the broken world. And Isaiah gave us a vivid picture of this in verse 22 of chapter 8, which was the last verse that he looked at. If you're there, you can look at it. He writes, they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness. You read that and say, this can't possibly be the end. There's got to be more to the story. And the good news, the great news, is that there is. There is more to the story. It continues to on in, in uh, Isaiah 9. And so let's look at it together. Um, once again, I'll read verses 1 through 5. Um, And then I'll pray and we'll begin. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, 
as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that you have afforded us this morning as we gather together to glorify you and worship you together as a body rather than individuals. And now as we enter into a time of worship through the preaching of your word, we are anxious to hear from you as you have revealed yourself to us. We confess that your word is authoritative in our lives and we trust that while it was written many years ago, it still bears relevance to our broken state today. And for this, we praise you and we declare your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we left off in thick darkness. There was thick darkness for Isaiah's contemporaries. And the reason that there was thick darkness is because they had left God out of their life. Choosing their own way rather than God's ways, fearing uh, humans, fearing other men, other nations, rather than fearing God, the nation actually plunged itself into thick darkness. Because you see, when you leave God, who is the designer and giver of life, out of life, life does not work relationships do not work. Our bodies do not work. Our mind does not work. Our work does not work. Because God designed life to to, to function with him at the center. And when you take him out and put him at the center, life simply doesn't work, which results in thick, distressing, gloomy darkness. But thankfully, like I said, the story doesn't end there in Isaiah 8.22. There's Isaiah 9, verse 1, where we actually see a dramatic turn of events, right? Uh, Verse 1, but, one of the greatest words in all of Scripture, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Despite the bleak circumstances, which are ever so present, there is something happening in the background. There, There is a greater reality. And Isaiah expresses it using two terms, two terms that he, he, he um, uh, repeats from verse 22 to verse 1. It's the same idea, right? Uh, and once again, like last week, Isaiah is setting up two different ways, two different experiences, if you will, using these two words. And those words are anguish and gloom. Anguish and gloom. Anguish. When you hear the word anguish, think it means distress. Right? Think affliction. And the word gloom actually means a dimness of sorts, a darkness. When you hear the word gloom, think of the word overcast. Here in Erie, dreary Erie, if you will, we are familiar, right? With gloom, that idea of gloom, because through the winter months, the skies are often blanketed with ominous clouds. From a, from a mental, spiritual, emotional perspective, gloom is the byproduct of anguish, right? Distress, anguish, naturally produces an overcast spirit. 
And we know this to be true because if you've had a rough day at work, you've had a stressful day at work, you come home and all your spouse has to do is take one look at you. And as they see the gloom written over their face, what do they say? What happened at work today? What kind of anguish did you experience? What was so distressing that you are in such an overcast, gloomy state? Now with that in mind, with anguish and gloom in mind, consider the similarities and the differences between Isaiah 8.22 and Isaiah 9.1. Isaiah, once again, is comparing two different experiences and the similarity in experience is that they both will experience or have experienced anguish. It's not the anguish that's removed, right? In this context, Isaiah who's residing in Jerusalem, who's once again is facing uh, pressure from other nations. Uh, Jerusalem would eventually face national collapse. Judah would face national collapse. Isaiah, as one who honors God, still residing in Jerusalem, does not escape the anguish that goes with that. Because God never promises us exemption from the hardship of living in the broken world. We're in the broken world. We're experiencing the broken world. We experience it every day and we're not going to escape that brokenness. We're going to feel the effect. We are going to be in anguish. But the difference in experience in verse 22 and verse one is that while there will be many who experience the gloom, the overcast of anguish, there are others who do not experience the gloom of anguish. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In other words, there will be people who experience the broken world without the shadow of gloomy death looming over their heads. That, that despite the distressing circumstances, despite the anguish, there will be no gloom. It's not overcast. They see a different picture. They see a greater reality. They actually see beyond the gloom, beyond the clouds. And what we have here in verse one is language of hope. And ultimately people who walk according to God's word are people of hope. And and Isaiah goes on to poetically describe what this hope looks like in verses two to three. And then he goes on to explain this hope. How does this hope come about? How can this be so? In verses four through five, let's walk through it together. We'll come back to verse one, um, but let's look at the hope described, what it looks like, and then the hope explained. How, How could this possibly come about? Isaiah writes in verse two that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. A few months ago, I was watching a TV special on National Geographic. It was recounting uh, the, the horrible, tragic events of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And one of the most um, compelling stories from this show, this documentary, uh, came from a man named Mickey Cross, who was a lieutenant for the New York Fire Department. He was assigned to the North Tower for search and rescue. And when the South Tower, which was the first one to collapse, uh, fell, all emergency personnel began evacuating the North Tower. 
And so Mickey and his, and his ladder, his group of firefighters began the long trek down several flights of stairs and they made it all the way down to the fourth floor when the North Tower began to fall with them still in the building. Miraculously, though, they survived, but hope was still bleak because they were buried. They were absolutely buried under the rubble. Lieutenant Cross recalls the aftermath of the event after the collapse. He says that everything went to absolute silence. And he said, having no experience being dead, you don't know what it's like. So I thought I could possibly be dead. This is an exact quote. I thought I could possibly be dead because I couldn't feel my body. I couldn't feel anything. We looked around for a way out, but there was just a wall of debris. And we realized there wasn't a thing we could do. We're not getting out of this. There's no up, no down, to the side, no way. The only way we're going to get out is if somebody comes and gets us. Later on in the interview, Cross um, said that the situation was getting really bad. And then after about three hours, I was looking up and I saw a flicker of light. And then it went out and then it flickered on again. And then in a couple of minutes, the light lit up and it was the sun. A beam of sun came in. It was like something from God, something from heaven. It meant that there was an opening for us, a way out. That kind of story is what Isaiah, is the kind of story that Isaiah has in mind when he writes that those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah is speaking to just our utterly desperate spiritual situation, our condition that is so dark and so bleak that we're not getting out of this. There's no way up. There's no way down. Not to the side. No way. Yet those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. It's critical to note that the role the one in darkness plays in this verse is extremely passive, right? The light shines on them. They they didn't do anything. They couldn't do anything. They're in darkness. Even if they tried, it would all be in vain. They didn't turn on the light. They didn't dig their way out. They didn't muster up enough strength to get out of there. They weren't good enough to get out of their spiritual darkness by their own means. Just as Lieutenant Cross said, the only way we're getting out is if somebody comes and gets us. And this is the beauty of the Christmas story is that somebody has. On them has light shown. Light has come into our darkness. And Isaiah describes it as a great light. Lieutenant Cross saw a flicker of light, just the tiniest bit of light, and it was all the hope that he needed in his desperate, uh, desperate situation, in his desperation. Humanity spiritually is in a darker position, yet the light that shines in the people in darkness is not just a flicker, it is a great light. That word great, the adjective, it, it speaks to its intensity. This isn't just a little flicker. Of, is that what I think it is? Is that, is that, 
Is, is there hope? No, this is a great light. This is a, an explosion of light. It's impossible to hide this light. It's impossible to cover it up. And that's what God does. He, he gives a light in the darkness and this creates actually a new situation for his people. As the great light shines, something happens. Their condition, if you will, changes. Um, in the context that Isaiah writes, once again, the, the nation of Judah is shrinking as the Assyrian Empire overtakes it and attacks it. Yet when the light shines in such darkness, Isaiah says that God multiplies the nation. He enlarges the nation. It may seem to Isaiah that God's people are decreasing, right, in their national collapse. That God's people are being wiped off the face of the planet. But the truth is that as God intervenes, as this great light shines, his people will increase. The size of God's kingdom is enlarged. And God will increase their joy, Isaiah says. There will not be sorrow, but there will be jubilation. There will be great joy. People will rejoice before God for what he's done. And Isaiah describes it using two illustrations for what this joy will look like. First, the joy will look like the type of joy that a farmer has at harvest. What a glorious feeling for the farmer when the crops burst forth from the ground and they can collect their provision, which is a blessing from God. That's the first illustration. The second illustration, uh, Isaiah writes, that the joy will look uh, like the joy of soldiers after a victory when they divide the spoil. The, the, the fruit of their victory can now be collected and is theirs to enjoy. When, when my kids are done trick-or-treating on Halloween, one of the most joyous moments for them is when they get home and they go to their rooms and they take their giant bags of candy and they dump it out all over the floor and behold the spoils of triumph. They've conquered the neighborhood and now it's time to enjoy their plunder before dad comes and eats it all. As God intercedes into the world for those who honor him and regard him as holy, there will be a harvest. There will be provision and there will be spoils from a victory that we, that we didn't even fight in. Right? By the time we get to the battlefield, it's already over. We've already won. It was won by God. And these examples in Isaiah's poem represent like this complete joy that somebody experiences in the light of God, a joy that we can enjoy in the here and now, and a joy that someday we will enjoy fully. Right? Isaiah, last week we talked about the thick darkness and how they didn't know darkness until they experience it on that day where they experience thick darkness. You can reverse that in the same way. And Isaiah says, you think you've had a joy in your life? You don't even know joy. You don't even know how glorious it's going to be when that light shines. It is a full, complete joy. And that is how this hope is described in verses two through three. This is what it's going to look like. It's going to be a great light. It will look like an increase of joy in a time of prosperity and provision for God's people. 
That's what it looks like, but how does it happen? How is this hope possible? If verse 2 and 3 are hope described, what it looks like, then verses 4 and 5 is hope explained, how it happens. And it happens through liberation. Look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. We, we've this morning looked at this great hope, right? This description of this great light. And what we have here in this verse is actually this picture of bondage. And bondage is a description of the darkness. In fact, as the original reader would come across the illustrations of the yoke and of the staff and of the rod of the oppressor, it would conjure up images of Israel's captivity in Egypt. When they read Isaiah's words, they'd say, we know exactly what you're talking about. All of those words throughout the Old Testament are used to describe Israel's enslavement to the Egyptians. And it represents just kind of this full bondage that people experienced. More than just the physical elements of themselves, it points to a greater bondage, a greater pain. The, the yoke that burdens, it represents that just that toilsome suffering that they endured through their work. The staff for his shoulder represents the physical pain that they received from, from the sticks that would strike their backs. And the rod of his oppressor represents the emotional and mental toll uh, of being lorded over a result of personal hostility from a taskmaster. But God has broken the yoke and the staff and the rod. For those who have seen the great light, there is no more burden. There are no more blows and there are no more tyrants. Isaiah says it it will actually look like it did on the day of Midian. Now, this is a reference to another event in the history of Israel. You can find the story in Judges chapter 6 through 7. I would love for you sometime on your own time to go read that passage and study it for yourself. It's one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture um, that tells of this uh, man named Gideon. He was one of the judges. Um, Now, Gideon was an Israelite, but he had come up against the Midianites. The the Midianites... uh, just walloped all over Israel for about seven years, it says. They, they, they trampled them. They were like that big bully that would come and steal your lunch money every single day at school. Um, every time the Israelites planted, planted crops and they'd experience harvest, the Midianites would come and just devour the place. The, the scriptures actually say that they, they devour the produce of the land uh, and they would steal all of the livestock and they'd leave absolutely nothing behind for Israelites. They were nothing but a bunch of locusts. It was so bad that the Israelites would actually have to hide out in caves carved into the mountainsides and they would go to great lakes and pains to produce their food in areas where it was very difficult to produce their food so that they could hide it from the Midianites who were coming to steal it. 
And then one day God calls this man Midian, who's the lowest in his family. He's the weakest and he's part of the lowest clan. And God tells Gideon, go form an army so that I can deliver the Midianites into your hands. And so Gideon does what he's instructed. He goes and recruits, spends time and amasses this army of like tens of thousands, multiple tens of thousands of people. And God looks to the army and he says, oh, Gideon, your army's too big. And you read that and you say, what? Like they're going into war. I would want a big army. And God says, no, 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 no. Gideon, the army's too big because if you go in and defeat the Midianites with that many people, Israel uh, will boast over me saying my own hand has saved me. See, God doesn't like it when people try to steal his glory. God doesn't like it when people try to take credit for something that he has done. And so God gives Gideon these crazy instructions on how to shrink the army to his liking. And eventually this army of over 32,000 men is dwindled to just 300. And God says, there we go. With 300 men, I will hand over the great Midianite army to you and then you will praise me. And he does. And he follows through. For those who this great light has shown upon, they will experience a repeat of Egypt and they will experience a repeat of Midian. There will be liberation over the oppressor as God breaks their yoke and their staff and their rod. There will be victory. And not only will there be victory, but there will also be peace. Isaiah continues into verse five with just a vivid picture here to describe peace. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Every bit of clothing that outfits the warrior that's against you, Isaiah, every scrap of garment down to the footwear is gonna be thrown into the fire because they won't need it anymore. It's destroyed. The warrior no longer dresses for war. All the tools of war are gone. The the attire for the soldier is just as obsolete as the weapons and tools that were broken in verse four. No more marching. No more blood-stained clothes. War is over. What a glorious light. What a great hope this is. And now we've described what this hope looks like. And we've explained how it will happen through liberation. But what is this hope specifically? Is, Is this just wishful thinking on Isaiah's part? Is this just an empty hope? Is this just like a wishy-washy hope with no real source attached to it? I know exactly what baseless hope looks like because I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. I know a thing or two about what it looks like it is and it's miserable. I hope that's not what this hope is. And is it that kind of hope? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And Isaiah actually mentions this. To this point, we've spoken about hope in ambiguous terms. And so I want to get specific now about what this hope actually is, specific to what Isaiah is pointing to. And it's back in verse one. God intercedes on behalf of the people. He does something. And Isaiah tells us that he does it in a specific 
location. Isaiah writes, of God, in the former time, he, being God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. You read that and say, what on earth does this territory, this land, have to do with hope? What does this even mean? We have some puzzle pieces that Isaiah's contemporaries didn't even have that actually help complete the picture. And it has everything to do with the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Let's go ahead and put the puzzle together. The people of Israel, they were descendants. Um, One of their forefathers, if you will, was a man named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons who would go on to have their own families. And as their own families grew larger and larger, as families do, uh, they eventually were referred to as tribes. Now, fast forward a significant amount of time, and this family of 12 tribes now becomes what we know as the nation of Israel. And God not only promised that there would be a great nation, but they would also be given a great land, a promised land. And so God delivers the nation of Israel into the promised land, and then they divide that land up into 12 different territories, each tribe with its own territory. There's one tribe that doesn't get territory, but other two others make up for it. It's kind of confusing. We won't get into it. But uh, what's important to know is that the land is divided 12 different ways. Uh, Israel and, and these tribes were from these different lands, one territory for each tribe. And they were commanded by God when they arrived into the promised land to actually drive out uh, the inhabitants so that the people of God would not be influenced by pagan influence. Zebulun and Naphtali were two of those 12 tribes. And it's actually recorded that they failed to drive out uh, the, the people. They failed to listen to God's command. They didn't do what God had instructed them to do by his word. And so God, according to Isaiah, in the former time, brought them into contempt. These areas of Israel, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, these areas gained a reputation for being a place of scorn and a place of dishonor. So much so that even centuries after, it was assumed and said that nothing good could possibly come from this region. And so when when God hides his face from the house of Jacob, like Isaiah says in verse 17 of chapter 8, and God allows the Assyrian Empire to come in and overtake Israel and lay siege to to, to Jerusalem there in, in, in Judah, guess which territories are the first to be conquered by the Assyrian Empire, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. They are the first invaded. They are the first humbled. They are held in contempt. The people in those lands are the first to suffer captivity under the Assyrians. And they are the first to experience the thick darkness that Isaiah tells them in verse 22 of chapter 8. In the former time, he brought contempt uh, into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. 
Isaiah is talking about the same land. It's just communicated differently. He calls it something else. And we're forced to ask the question, how does God take this disgraced land with a disgraced reputation and make it glorious? How is that even possible? Well, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew actually helps us out here. We come to the first century where Matthew has met this man named Jesus and he wants the world to know who Jesus is. So he writes about him. And in Matthew chapter three, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, he's preaching about Jesus actually. He's preparing the way for Jesus. He's essentially preparing for Jesus' ministry to come. It hasn't started yet, but it's going to start soon. And then in Matthew three, John baptizes Jesus. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness of Judea and John the Baptist is arrested. And upon hearing John had been arrested, uh, Jesus then travels north to the Sea of Galilee. Should sound familiar. And this is where Jesus begins his public ministry. Listen to what Matthew writes in verse 12 of chapter four. Now he, being Jesus, heard that John had been arrested. He withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Now, if Matthew is writing purely so that we would understand the historical Jesus, purely to record history, that would have been enough information. Matthew does not need to include any other details. But in a strange and obviously deliberate move, Matthew points out in verse 12 that Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. To the original reader of Matthew, that would have been one of the most bizarre things in the world because that region has not been referred to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali for centuries. Matthew, why on earth would you call it that? That seems to be unnecessary information. It seems to be irrelevant. Matthew writes it because he doesn't want the reader to just understand Jesus historically, but he wants the reader to understand Jesus theologically. And if there's any doubt that this is Matthew's intent, he actually continues on. He makes it crystal clear that Jesus lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Verse 14, so that was what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he goes on and quotes the first two verses of Isaiah chapter nine, which we've spent our time with this morning. And if you're familiar with the book of Matthew, you'll know that this is actually the third time that Matthew quotes the book of Isaiah. And so what's Matthew's point in all of this? Well, Matthew finishes the puzzle for us. Matthew makes the connection that Jesus beginning his ministry in that particular region is how God made it glorious. Matthew's saying, do you remember what Isaiah said? This would be a glorious place. This is why. As Jesus comes in and preaches the gospel for the very first time, preaches the good news that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he preaches it at ground zero of thick darkness. Despite this region being the first to experience the consequence of living apart from God's way seven centuries prior, they are now in a place of honor as they are the first to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. In a region 
there was thick darkness. But now there is a great light. The New Testament writer Matthew takes this passage in Isaiah 9 that we've looked at this morning to mean that the hope depicted and described and explained in Isaiah is none other than the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the hope that we have. That is the firm foundation that we stand on. That is why there is no gloom for her who was in anguish. Jesus is the great light who shines on those who dwelt in the deep darkness, in the land of deep darkness. Jesus multiplies the nations and increases its joy. Jesus breaks the rod of the oppressor. And he did it by allowing himself to be broken on the cross, submitting to death only so that he could overcome it. And that was the plan all along all the way back to Genesis. Remember when sin entered the world and the world was plunged into thick darkness, God makes a promise to the serpent of all people. He says, the serpent will bite the heel of Jesus. The the, the devil's gonna get a shot at Jesus, but then Jesus will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus brings victory. And Jesus who is fully God, became fully man at that first Christmas so that you would know him. Please understand that God has gone to great lengths to seek you out. If you've wandered into the building this morning trying to find God, I assure you that he is looking for you. He is seeking you and he has revealed himself to you. He has stepped into the thick darkness of humanity and the thick darkness of your life so that you may see the great light of Christ. Would you pray with me? And Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you, Father, that our hope is, is, is founded and based on the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Lord, we have full confidence that Jesus is who he said he was, that that he he is God incarnate because he he had authority over death itself. And and we trust, Father, in that hope. We can, we, we just, that firm foundation that death is not the end, that physical death is not the end, that spiritual death is not the end, that you have a great light for us. And his name is Jesus. And and we look forward to that day of resurrection for ourselves, knowing that Jesus himself was resurrected. And for this, we praise you. Because while we were in darkness and incapable of escaping by our own means, you interceded, you stepped into the picture. And we praise you and we praise your son and we praise your spirit who illuminates these words to us even today. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.